Hi everyone, this is Arthi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with a past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. Acknowledgement to country. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We celebrate their continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we're going to be speaking to Nate about his chapter, my journey from a balanced literacy teacher to a science of reading perspective. Welcome, Nate. Tell us. Hi, Artie. It's great to be back on your podcast. So good to have you back. Tell us, tell us a bit about yourself. And we are specifically talking about the last four years. What yeah. happened? So um, I am a teacher, first and foremost. And uh, I would say, secondly, I'm a nerd. Um, I am a teacher of 11 years and I, I've taught every grade um, and I have taught um, in a couple different countries because I'm, I'm a, I have a little bit of the traveling bug. I like to move around. Mm-hmm. Although I think I have a kid now, so I think I'm a little bit more reading <laughs> than before. Um, and uh, I am really interested in research on um, education, especially from a meta-analysis perspective. And uh, over the last four years, I've been podcasting and writing about and researching about the, the science of teaching, most specifically the um, reading and math. Um, um, and yeah, that's that's just me. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm really just a, a teacher who likes to talk about research. I'm just a nerd. That's... My students make fun of me because they they know my students know that I do this. So they're they like they're like, I'm gonna go home and play video games. What are you gonna do, Mr. H? <laughs> oh, you're gonna go home and do research, aren't you? You nerd. <laughs> <laughs> you're a proud nerd. Uh, yeah, I'm okay with it. Yeah, yeah I'm okay with it. So good. Um, so Nate, let's talk about. When did your belief perspective shift the moment that that happened and then the subsequent events that followed? Yeah, definitely. I was um, doing my reading specialist course at the time. I was, I, I went to school um, in a balanced literacy province in Canada. Like every, all of my instructors balanced literacy. Like I had been taught phonics as a kid. Like that was how I learned how to read. Um, but I didn't realize that there was a reading wars debate. Um, and I'm actually, I'm a, a reading teacher as one of my teachable subjects. Um, so I'm a history teacher and an English teacher, I should say. Yeah. And uh, I have, I was doing my specialist, which is the, my last course in a series of qualifications and where I live yeah. on reading. And um, I, at the time had gotten, started to get interested in academic research and teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just kind of like fact-checking things that my profs were saying, because I started to notice my professors, they never really had citations. They would just say like really strong, bold claims and tell us this is what the science shows shows us. And they would never support what they said. And at the time, actually, I was uh, also really interested in the science of fitness. So I was reading all about the science of fitness. And as I was doing that, I was getting a lot of information that was really high quality and like they had citations and they, they would talk about the research that proves their points and perspectives. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my reading professors or reading education professors never did have citations or, or research. And some of the claims that they had were really strange. Yeah. Um, I remember one of the claims was uh, 
one of the first claims that really triggered me into, into reading more was that um, phonics at too young of an age caused brain damage. Um, and it, it's, uh, it was put out. Yeah, there's a, a textbook called Developmentally Appropriate Practice. It was really popular um, in the 90s with um, some balanced literacy professors. And I still see that claim sometimes, rarely on Twitter, um, that, you know, phonics can damage brains. And I remember thinking, there's no way. Like, I, I didn't know anything at that time about the Reading Wars debate, but I was like, this can't be true. So I, I look and like in the textbook says, like, studies show this happens, but they don't have like a single right. citation. In, yeah. in the textbook, there was no citation. And that was like one of the, the first trigger moments. But at the same time, my school was bringing in RTI and RTI really emphasizes um, an evidence-based perspective as part of like their training system. Yeah. Um, but they didn't really talk about reading it, reading uh, education or reading science, which is interesting because like it's a reading tool uh, yeah. or at least as it was presented and they didn't really present reading research. So I got this really generalized um, overview of research from RTI training and it was often focused on the value of explicit instruction versus inquiry-based learning. Yeah. And again, my, my schools that I was taking my reading specialist course through was all like, oh, that direct instruction stuff, that's horrible for the children. We can never give them direct instruction. And I remember when I left teacher's college, I thought the same thing. I thought direct instruction is bad because it bores kids and makes them hate school. And uh, inquiry-based learning is way better. And I, like, I left school being like, um, guided reading is the best way to teach kids how to read, that um, inquiry-based learning is amazing, and that explicit instruction is terrible. And uh, um, you know, when I was doing my reading specialist course, there was no mention of phonics. And I, I just started actually challenging my professors. I remember one of them, another one of the claims that they really came out with was that learning styles was really important. Mm. And uh, it was mandated in my province. I believe it still is that we have to teach learning styles is important. And I remember I looked through the research on it. I was like, there's no way the research doesn't support teaching to learning styles. And uh, I presented the, the research to my, my prof and they said that I don't care what the research says, you're wrong. And uh, if you don't agree with me, I'm failing you on this course. Like they oh. just, and not only did they say that, they wrote that publicly and they said I had to respond publicly to agree with them to pass. I remember I took that to my dean of education at the time. And the dean was like, tough luck. Um, and I was like, wow. So that's what, that was like the moment that sparked my real interest in like going further. So at that time, I started a podcast with a friend, um, Pedagogy Non Grata. And uh, we started a blog and we just started looking at popular ideas in education yeah. um, and uh, looking at the research and what does the research show. And we, we really focused on a meta-analysis perspective, like what can we learn from meta-analysis? Yeah. And um, that was the start. And like really early into having that blog, I came across um, a person named Joyce Ball. Shout out to Joyce Ball, who was really interested in the reading wars debate. And I'd never heard of the reading divorce debate. I'd only ever been taught balanced literacy. Up until that point, balanced literacy was the only thing I knew. And I really thought balanced literacy just meant like we teach phonics and we teach comprehension and we teach words. And I'm like, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, she exposed me to the idea that it wasn't um, the whole story and that there was a debate on this topic. And I just started doing research on that specifically on the reading wars debate. And uh, that has really sucked my life into that debate over the last four years because I have researched and written about the Reading Wars debate more than any other topic now um, over that four-year time period. And I really realized like 
oh, this is like an open and shut case. Like every single major piece of research shows the same thing. And like there are there are like naysayers out there who try and like claim otherwise. And I was like, hey, I, I was a balanced literacy person. I went to the research trying to find like balanced literacy research to support it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there was none. Like this is this is so close case. And I I could talk about that more if people were interested, but um it was just so clear to me that this was the debate, the war was over. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, uh people who really wanted to hold on to that idea had not given up yet. And it's so interesting to me now that the really I think within the last year, the tide has really shifted against them. But I feel like I'm digressing now a lot. No, 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 that's all right, Nate. Um, I was just going to ask, say for somebody who is listening to this um, interview conversation um, or listening to the podcast, if they're not aware of what balanced literacy is, are you able to summarize it for someone not in the education sphere? Yeah, I, it's, it's actually kind of hard to summarize because there's, there's debate over the term, but I actually think that that's intentional. Um, I think people w- on that sort of side of the spectrum want to keep it as this open-ended, ambiguous thing that uh, nobody can describe and therefore nobody can criticize. In fact, I recently was in a debate with a balanced literacy scholar and they were like, well, you can't criticize it because you're not a balanced literacy scholar and you don't have a clear definition. I was like, well, what is your definition? And they referenced me to a paper, but there was no definition in the paper. And they refused to give me a definition. Now this, I'm not going to name the scholar by name, but the scholar like was really open, like um, would refuse to give me a definition of the term. And they're like, you can't criticize it if you don't have a definition, but they weren't going to give it. And they were like the world's biggest advocate of this term. And I was like, this is so clearly like, and that's a a rhetorical device. Like people in debates who like go on debate teams will learn that uh, it's really hard to attack an idea if you don't give an idea. So it's much easier to just say like, um, attack somebody else's point of view yeah. if you don't have a point of view of your own. But that there, so I'm just putting that caveat that there's some debate over what even balanced literacy is. And I've come across that recently a lot, but I'm gonna try and give my broad definitions for it. So it's it's really, it's a considered a constructivist approach to learning. So constructivism is a theory of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, emphasizes students' relationship with meaning and the knowledge. And this sort of ties into play, I think, with uh, actually three queuing randomly in the sense that they're focusing not on sounding out the word or identifying the word, they're focusing on identifying the meaning behind a sentence. That's like the big focus for balanced literacy. So they do sometimes use some phonics and part of the idea of balanced literacy, I think where really the name really came from was this idea that they were taking elements of whole language instruction, which was the previously most popular, and elements of phonics, which was rising in popularity, and yeah. trying to tie them together. And um, the way they did this, I think, is primarily by saying, like, it's okay to teach kids some phonics. Like, we're not going to, their, their heads aren't going to explode. Although, mm-hmm. I've heard balanced that are seeing people make the claim that it'll cause brain damage if it's getting too early. But that's besides the point. It, uh, but we, we should de-emphasize the importance of that phonics, because comprehension is more important. And we also, it's a skill-based instruction. It's direct-based instruction. And sort of like what I was talking about earlier, like they think that like we'll make school boring if we focus too much on the phonics element. Mm-hmm. So they'll say like, we should teach the phonics as a last resort to the students, students who need it most um, because most students don't need it. That's part of the idea. Um, and then part of the idea is then instead of using phonics for the average student, give them three cueing, which is look at the picture, look at the first letter of the word, which admittedly is sort of an element of phonics. Like if you could teach them to code the first letter, they might be able to identify like a word that goes with that. 
and then look at the context of the meaning of the, the rest of the sentence. So if you know five words of a sentence and you don't know one of the words, guess what that word you don't know is based on the context and the, the first letter in the picture. And the idea being this will be less boring for children than teaching them what are grapheme phoneme correspondences. Yeah. Um, and But I, I've seen debate on what it is. I've seen other people say that it means that we teach phonics in a less explicit ma manner. We still teach phonics, but it's less systematic or it's less implicit, uh, explicit. Mm -hmm. Things like uh, we only teach the, the phonics if the word, if the student struggles with the word. So for example, like uh, Johnny doesn't know the word Frank. So mm -hmm. the teacher comes along and goes, F -r and helps them sound it out. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing is that we have certain programs that are often identified as, as balanced literacy. The most famous of being obviously level language instruction by Fontas Banal and, and reading recovery. Yeah. And um, Nate, if it's okay, can we briefly unpack why the three queuing, so why the picture queue isn't that supportive and isn't that helpful? Why the first sound isn't that helpful? And why guessing might not be that helpful either? Yeah, you know what? It's it's actually fun. If I find this is an area that gets a lot of attention in the reading wars space, but I actually find it's um, one of the areas we have the least amount of uh, research okay. because uh, to best of my knowledge, there's very few studies on specifically three queuing. Yeah. However, what we know is the programs that use three queuing yeah. on average show lower research results than the programs that don't. Yeah. So that that's that's how I look at that. And I think intuitively, like I I remember even when I was a I considered myself a balanced literacy teacher, I remember thinking three queuing seemed dumb. For lack of a better word, it just it doesn't make intuitive sense to I think mm -hmm. most people because you're encouraging students to guess the meaning of the word rather yeah. than being able to read the word. And I, I would say that's a major difference between you're teaching kids how to read versus teaching kids how to guess. Yeah. I think I think three queuing is pretty problematic. But it I don't want to like make this definitive statement of, against three queuing specifically, just because I am someone who's tried to to build everything I say off of research. And you never know, like because we don't have a lot of studies on three queuing. And I've seen some balanced literacy scholars argue. Well, what if we took a phonics approach, taught all the phonics graphics correspondences, mm. and then we tried through queuing on top? Maybe that would show better results. And because we haven't researched it properly, yeah. I can't say definitively, no, it would not. Yeah. I would yeah. guess it wouldn't. And it doesn't fit with like neuroscience models we have yeah. and logic, but you, we don't have that application research out. So it's really hard to say that's the issue. And in terms of like looking at the, the first letter only, yeah, I think that's super problematic because like, one, letters tend to make different sounds when they're at the front of a word versus the middle of a word or it's the end of the word. So it, it, it like linguistically, it doesn't really make sense. And I'm sure you know that because you're a speech and language pathologist. But um, secondly, it's, you know, there's a huge part of words not in the first letter. Like, you know, how many words start with the letter R? <laughs> I'm sure it's a lot. So just teaching kids to look at that first letter and to guess, it's very counterintuitive if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because I was just thinking back to the student students I work with and what I've noticed a lot of is if the picture is there with the text presented, their eyes are forever darting between the picture and the word. And if you wouldn't realize that if you don't look at their eyes, but the minute you start noticing the eyes, there's that back and forth, really quick darting movement that's happening. And I'm wondering for the child, I'm looking at the picture going, 
the picture has a lot of information in it, more than the text actually has. So how are they deciphering what particular or what specific part of that picture they're having to look at to get to the word? Anyway, they were just some of them. No, that's, one of the things that's always bugged me about three queuing is I don't think you need to teach it. Mm. I think kids intuitively do three queuing all on their own. Like kids, like this whole idea that we're going to, to avoid teaching the boring phonics thing, we're going to constantly ram down kids' throats, look at the picture. I've never met a kid who didn't look at a picture to guess the word when you know what it is. Yeah. Like yeah. that's not something you need to teach. That's just a thing that kids do. Yeah. I did it. Like I don't, no one taught me through queuing. I certainly looked at pictures if I didn't know the word and guessed. I don't know. That's always seemed funny to me. Yeah. Okay. So then let's go on to you realized yeah, re uh, research didn't support it. Um, what what happened to your teaching practice four years ago and how did that start to shift when you were in front of your kids? Well, I have, uh, since I've started researching the reading wars, I've actually been um, exclusively teaching intermediate um, and high school, I should say, high school and intermediate. So it's had a less of a factor on me than it might other people in terms of my teaching practice. Because most of my students are at the point where, you know, the research doesn't support using phonics for core instruction. Because I haven't been an intervention teacher for that period. Mm -hmm. I have done intervention teaching, but not, not pre being aware of the science of reading research. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but what I will say is that when I have a student struggling, how I look at that is, is very different. Because now my, my first thought is, oh, well, I need to screen what they know and don't know. And I, I break it down according to skills. So I'm looking at Actually, the very first thing I always start when I look at a kid who doesn't know how to read is, do they know the names of the alphabet? Mm -hmm. Because I, I am shocked at how many times you will see a student in, say, grade seven, grade eight, who doesn't know the names of all the letters. And then, you know, I'm looking at things like phonemic awareness. Do they have phonemic awareness skills? Can I build that in? Can we work on that? And then I'm looking at things like, do they know their graphing, phoneme, correspondences? And I'll actually, like, write down all 44 of the com most common graphing, phoneme, correspondences on a piece of paper. And I'll just go over it with the student and I'll ask them to say the sound of each one of them. And if they don't know it, mm -hmm. I put a circle around it and then we go back to that and teach it. And, and th that's sort of different in the sense that I, as an intermediate teacher, because, you know, if you're doing core instruction, you would expect the student to know zero graphing phoneme correspondences at a very young age. Um, but, you know, once a kid has gotten to grade seven, even if they have reading difficulties, I find usually they know most of the graphene phoneme correspondences or the phonic sounds, if anyone's struggling to know what I'm talking about here. Um, but they, they sometimes they've missed some, especially the vowel digraphs. I find that kids really struggle with those. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think having them, teaching them those can help really bring up the reading. And it's a really quick, easy thing to add to the instruction. It doesn't need to be, um, it doesn't always need to be an extended thing, but you can really quickly and efficient, if you teach specifically to the phonemes your student doesn't know, yeah. you can really quickly bring those up through explosive instruction yeah that's brilliant and um having um taught high schoolers have you found that they've had really low literacy levels like what is what have you noticed in your own teaching and where are you drawing i suppose the instruction but the content or the way you teach what sort of things are you drawing from yeah, I mean, it's, I've taught in very different settings, uh, because some of my time has been in high school, some of my time has been in behavioral schools, some of my time has been in, in normal um, elementary schools and intermediate. Um, so it's always really different. Um, I, I have found actually a lot of times, 
that students really struggle with their their writing um, in in my grades. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time explicitly teaching um, the writing process system. So we spent a lot of time on syntax, which is funny. I haven't seen a lot of research on syntax, but it's weirdly been a hot topic in the, the science of reading community the last couple of weeks, I think, because Shanahan posted an article about it. He has that ability to just start a conversation yeah. um, with his own research. Uh, that's a thing I've taught a lot just because I found it has value, mm -hmm. but it's not something I've seen a lot of research on, uh, if I'm being honest. Um, I use a lot of reciprocal teaching for comprehension instruction. And it's okay. funny, I feel like reciprocal teaching, it, it's a model for teaching um, complex tasks. Um, the simplest way to describe it is I do, uh, we do, you do. Um, and I really, because students need you to show that example Yes. of I do for or for um, really complex comprehension things like I'm thinking like teaching theme especially for complex texts later in school yeah um, but I also find that they need a lot of practice and mm -hmm. I think it, it can be very tempting to get stuck like if you for example let's say I'm trying to teach theme to grade 12s it can be you can get stuck because you'll you'll teach, teach it to them you'll have them try they don't, they don't get it and you think oh I got to show them again so then you do another text and you do it again I didn't get this strap and I feel like what they actually need is they, they need to model it. Yes. But they also just need a ton of practice. Yes. So, and I, um, I hate poetry, actually. This is a, a secret about <laughs> I hate poetry. I hate reading it. But <laughs> I love using poetry for teaching theme and inferences and symbolism because they're often very abstract and they're short. Yes. So you can get a great deal amount of practice time and really quick um, with students using poetry. So I'll often um, say use four poems in a class and be like, we're going to try and identify the theme. You, you, you know, you do the first one and then you do, uh, you have the students try, try one on their own. Then you take up the answer and then you just repeat, repeat, repeat until yeah. they get it. And I think giving them that practice time is really, really important. And actually another thing that's great about poetry is it's great for fluency building yeah. because it has that sort of built in rhythm to it. Right. Uh, and when you're doing things like repeated reading, it can really help develop that fluency. And I love to do repeated readings with poetry as like a big group. And the reason I like to do it is because you can hear when they get it. So like when you do the first reading, you hear the sort of like uh, sound. It's like half the kid is like or mouthing the words or pretending or like they don't have like the proper cadence. And then the second time it sounds less terrible. And then the third time you're like, wow, that sounds great. And you can really hear this quick progression. So I think poetry is great for, for uh, older students. Um, but I think one thing I will say is that I really do believe that core instruction for from a science reading informed approach is very different across the grades. And I think people want to find commonalities between the grades. And I, I think that's a fallacy. I think, you know, a kindergarten's kid in their development is very different from a grade 12. You can't teach a kindergarten like a grade 12 and you can't teach a grade 12 like a kindergartner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Two different, um, two different brains and two different cognitive capacities. Definitely. Yeah, that is amazing. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you is, so as you've been teaching, did you start writing your blog when you were teaching or how did that come about? Yeah, I was teaching at the time. Although I don't write about my own personal teaching. I, my yeah. blog was always about questions. Yeah. really uh because you just as teachers we get all these ideas thrown at us like this is the answer and there's always either some professor who this is their pet project that they've been researching for years 
And I, I, I will like, I've been in well, my own podcast, I've interviewed some really amazing professors, mm. but they all, they all, a lot of them, I should say, not all, a lot of them really want to say that their particular area of research is the answer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, teachers are inundated this when we get really intelligent people who are way smarter than ourselves, me included, telling us what is the answer? What is, what do we need to be doing? And oftentimes it seems very focused on one issue at a time. Um, and I've, I've heard Shannon talk about this too. And it's just, that's area people's area of expertise. So they want to talk about it. And similarly, like people want to sell a product and they want to say like, this product is the answer. This is the silver bullet. This will solve all your education problems. Yeah. And I just wanted to test ideas. So, um, I started reading the, the meta-analyses for popular ideas in education and see, to see, like, did the meta-analyses show these ideas worked or didn't work? And I, I honestly, I, I found more often than not, the ideas that were promoted at the time were, were not evidence-based. And I, now part of that is I grew up in like a, a balanced literacy constructivist um, school of thought in, in my province and in, in my area. And uh, the, you know, everything that was, was really big was teaching to learning styles, was um, inquiry-based learning, discovery-based learning. And actually, I think there's a place for some of those things, that, but the way in which it was implemented was problematic. Um, and, you know, balanced literacy, um, and you, you really see a lot of constructivism taught in math. I've heard people say things really commonly, like never teach a kid a math formula. Well, personally, by the way, I'm not good at math, which is funny because like my, my blog has a lot to do with math statistics, but I'm not good at math. Um, and I couldn't do what I do without calculators. And uh, if, if I had not been able to look up formulas online or use tools to do the things I do, online i could never do that math i couldn't like sit there with a piece of paper and calculate uh, effects as my life depended on it um and uh the idea like that a teacher would have said to me in like elementary school like i'm not going to teach you any formulas you have to learn those for yourself that would have been horrifying for me i would have like just shut down yeah um and given up and um i think there's there's a commonality between that but um i think the model of of how we pitch things in education has not really asked for receipts. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone, when a, a, like a, a, like a guru quote unquote comes to a school to provide information on training to teachers, the principal isn't trained to ask the teacher or the guru, like, can you present me with the research first? So I know that what you're saying is true. Mm-hmm. Um, when people sell a program online, mm-hmm. um, they're rarely asked to present research to, to display the efficacy. In fact, uh, I have some friends now um, who have programs. And one of them has recently told me that she has never once been asked by a school district or principal to show them research on the efficacy of her program. Not once. And she had that research, but she'd never once been asked. And I think that's just, it's symptomatic. We don't see education as a science. We see it as an art. So we, we, we devalue the science behind what we're, we're doing. Wow. Because it, it means that teachers are left sort of guessing what is best practice and everyone's doing a different thing in a different school and it's there's this veil of secrecy as to what is best practice because only the Howard Harvard know what that is and teachers couldn't possibly and I don't know yeah uh, no no that's all right I was just wondering we can jump onto the second link mate to um, continue our conversation oh Sorry, I'm. No, 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 that's all right. You're cutting out a bit. Oh, let's jump on to the second link. Okay. Yeah.
Okay, so Nate, we've been talking about your blog. Um, again, for people that are not aware of research and not aware of, um, yeah, just, you know, how things can be supported, what is a meta-analysis? Yeah, and my, like my whole blog is based around this for the most part. Yeah. Um, and I should say I have now too. We ran out of room on our server on the, the first blog. So we had to start a second one. Um, and uh, realistically, we have a problem in research and education. And that's just that um, there's a lot of variability in studies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just because it's such a comp, like studying learning in kids is such a hard thing to do because there's so much variability in the, the factors. Like, you know, how do you compare a study in say an inner city school um, where you know the municipal taxes are really high and the kids have all the best benefits and all the best technology and their parents are all lawyers and doctors to a school in the countryside um, where they're, uh, all the parents are farmers and uh, we don't have access to the same level of infrastructure or technology. Mm. And um, you, know, you might also have a really good teacher in one classroom in one study and a, a not as good a teacher in another classroom. So yeah. we just have so much variability. And there is a, there's sort of two models of how to view um, education science that are, are presented. Um, one that's often presented, and especially by people who support balanced literacy, is, well, well, let's just find the highest quality study, and we'll say that one's the correct study. And the problem, there's a couple problems with that model. Um, one problem is that um, what makes the highest quality study is a little bit of an arbitrary thing. Two, you kind of have to read every study imaginable to, do, to identify that, which makes science really unaccessible to the average person, because then the average person has to go out and read 50 studies to say they understand one topic to try and identify the best study. Um, and then another problem with that is even when we have like all the factors we can control for, controlled for in an education study, we still see huge variability. Um, Fonta Spinell, funnily enough, I like as much as I don't think their research is promising in terms of results. I think the research in terms of quality is really good. I think they have some of the best quality research out there and the results are low, but on average, there's a lot of variability there too. Like there's one study with really high results and they have one study with like really, really low results. And they're basically like the same study. So which one is the right one? It was done by the same researcher on the same program and the same grade range and the same study design and both had large study samples. So, uh, do I just identify which one of those is my favorite and say that that's the answer? Or do I look at, well, what does most of the research show on average? And that's what meta-analysis does. Meta-analysis says, well, let's look at all the studies, take an average, we'll write a study about that. And we, it's basically a study of studies. And I, I love meta-analysis, one, because I think it's more objective to just to forget about trying to find the perfect study. Because in fact, most studies have problems. Yeah. Like it's very rare that you would find a study that has like no or identifiable concerns or issues. And that's why we have limitation sections. Usually most studies have at the bottom a limitation section to describe what they could have done better or what was missing or lacking um, because they all have problems. Uh, So rather than worrying about finding the best one, let's just look at all of them and find out what was the average result. And, you know, when we have a very large number of studies, we can break those results down further and be like, hey, what were the results for grades one to two? What were the results for grades three to five? What were the grades results for grades seven to eight? Um, And I think that's a much better way of finding what is the science or the scientific consensus on an issue than trying to find this mythically high quality study to to demonstrate us the answer. And is this one of the um, sort of areas, uh, say, 
when I was studying at university, we had very specific courses on how do you actually uh, unpack research? What is good research? You know, uh, what is high quality research? Where are the randomized controlled trials as opposed to the single case studies? Um, is this a point of understanding that is to be built for teachers or is this something, can any teacher just look at a study and know this is a good study or not a great study? It needs a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, I've written um, uh, multiple guides on the internet because I, I wrote two guides for my website yeah. and then I uh, helped another author write a couple guides for their website. Um, yeah. I did a, I did a, a, a webinar on the topic yeah. and uh, recently a guest article has tried to like, come on my website and write an even simpler version of my article yeah. um, before teachers found the original too dense. Um, and like, I, I think the average teacher can understand how to read a study, but it's hard. Like it takes time and yeah. it takes uh, this skill. And yeah. I, I think reading a meta-analysis is somewhat easier actually than reading say a one study because um, you sort of have less room for error in a meta-analysis. There's not, there's bad meta-analysis, don't get me wrong, they yeah. exist. Yeah. Um, but they, there's less, there's tends to be less issues because you're looking at a larger number of studies and like a good meta-analysis should only include for the most part, average to great studies in it. We don't necessarily exclude usually all the, 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 all of the medium quality studies. Normally you'll find like medium and high quality studies in a meta-analysis together for yeah. lack of a better term. But the great thing about a meta-analysis is often that they give you a single metric to identify the efficacy of an idea. So like they usually break it down to an effect size and that effect size number is standardized across um, different studies. So we can compare things. So, you know, anything that's seen as 0.2 or lower is yeah. seen as basically insignificant. Yeah. Maybe there's debatable over the terminology, but basically 0.2 or lower, we, we don't really have any proof that it was not just random chance that it happened. You know, um, 0.2 to 0.4 is kind of seen as small 0.4, and it, it is dependent. I think in reading science, we tend to see lower results on average. So yeah. I kind of want to adjust it a little when I talk about reading science. But generally speaking, 0.4 to 0.6 or 7 is considered moderate range of results. Yeah. And anything above like 0.7, 0 0.8 is seen as high. And, and like an easy way of looking at that is it's a modified percentage. Like it's a percentage of change corrected for variability. And, um, you know, if you saw 100% improvement, you would say that's way better than 20% improvement. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, decimals convert in the same way. So it's an easy framework of saying, looking at it. It's not necessarily technically correct, but it's a good framework for the average person. And I think having that, having that framework is great for teachers because if they just want to look at a meta-analysis mm -hmm. and see what the result of a, an intervention was, it can give them a far quicker, easier tool for looking at scientific research than other ones. And they don't have to read 50 studies. Yeah. They just have to read one. Um, and I think the great thing about that is it democratizes science. Yeah. Um, it makes it possible for the average person to understand it. Whereas I feel like the previous model I discussed of looking for that one unicorn study, yeah. um, it sort of does the opposite. It, it makes it so that only the, the elites can, can read your science and tell you what it is. And I think that's problematic too, because people don't always uh, read science in good faith or, or report mm -hmm. on it in good faith. Sometimes they just want to, just want to prove that their idea was correct. And they'll tell you every study that disproved their thinking was terrible. And that one study that agreed with them out of 50, that was the one good study. That was the reason it agreed with their hypothesis is because it was better than all the other studies. 
sorry. And, and isn't that sort of, you know, then the bridge between research to practice, that's never actually connected if that's the case and everybody else has the knowledge. Uh, whereas we need to be able to understand it and then apply that knowledge within our practice to be able to get to the children. Yeah, definitely. And I, I've kind of been talking about the stage and the stage model a little bit. I, I kind of want to, if, you, if you'll allow me to, yeah. to complain about this a little bit more. And I think it's a really problematic framework because I think it's what led us to the crisis in education we have. And I say crisis because I really do generally think we're in a crisis. Yeah. You know, my province, for example, had math scores drop 40% in 10 years uh, before COVID started. And uh, I, I think that's, that's a travesty. And I think that was a result of us going in the direction of anti-science because we didn't understand science. Because people who were selling programs or people who are idealists for philosophical reasons, not for scientific reasons, yeah. got really hung up on specific ideas in education, like not using math formulas. Yeah. And they pushed an agenda. And the average person had no way of identifying that that was not accurate. The average teacher had no way. And uh, it, it's just, it puts this veil of mystery up on what is best practice and what is not. And I'm all about just removing the veil and trying to show people um, what does the evidence show. So when I, when I go through an issue on my blog, I just start with a question. I don't start with like an agenda. I start with a question and I, I research it via meta-analysis. What did the meta-analysis show? And then I report on that. And sometimes I get my, like, I usually have a prediction yeah. and I will sometimes put like, this was my question. This was my prediction. This was the result. And oftentimes I'm wrong. Like uh, the number of times I've been wrong is more times than I can count because sometimes just like, and that's how real science should work. Yeah. Real science. You should end up being wrong sometimes. I, I like, I, unless you're, I guess the world's biggest education genius um, yeah. because like, that's just life. That you can't always be right. And that's why I think it's, it's problematic to have that stage on the stage. And I think what really ends up happening is the scholar who gets the, the reputation that mm. everybody looks to mm. is not necessarily the scholar who's the smartest or the most open or the most compassionate about their research. It's the one who's best at marketing. Mm. And that for me is a really dangerous yeah. um, way to look through education, to just go to the people with the best marketing for the answers. Yeah. And Nate, I'd like to sort of unpack the phrase that you said mm -hmm. we're in crisis education is in crisis and you specifically talked about the math scores dropping by 40 percent yeah. globally this is also the case not for maths but education is in crisis what what is the crisis and what are the bigger picture implications of the education crisis yeah i i can't speak with too much authority to every country yeah. Um, but I think we do see really low reading levels, for example, in the United States, um, like shockingly low, if you look at what those the reading levels are. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, in Canada, we have higher levels, reportedly. But if you look at how we report on those numbers, they're very misleading, because Canada um, excludes basically any student who has difficulty with reading from their standardized testing. Um, so you, you, and it's actually about 20% we exclude from standard testing. So if you remove the bottom 20% from the class, does that ever bring up your average? Yeah. And I think Canada's in the top 10 in the world for reading, but we also have the highest exclusion rate from standardized testing. Um, and I, I say math is a crisis, but I, I really think this crisis is a philosophical, philosophical cause. And I think a lot of us, when we went to school, we had very strict teachers. 
and uh, our teachers had a very authoritarian, very traditional model of education. Mm. And I think um, when those teachers became teachers, they wanted to democratize education. They wanted to put, impose liberal values, for lack of a better term, onto education. And I actually think that was a noble idea. Mm. I'm I'm not a like a like I'm not putting the tradition and the past on some sort of pedestal, but mm. I think. The idea that we just do the opposite of everything we did in the past on every issue was very problematic and has led to to uh, Christ in education because we just we went too far on this this pendulum on this journey of going the opposite direction. And there's there's ideas that I think those progressives in education have totally right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of focus on within the progressive movement on anti-racism in schools and decolonization. I think that's great. I'm also in favor of those things. Um, and I think in terms of actually, I think in bullying, in terms of bullying, I think we're seeing a huge improvement. And I think that has been a, an, a part of progressive education uh, modeling that we've done that. But I, I think in terms of academics, we've seen a huge decline. And I, I think um, it really comes down to this overreaction of thinking everything in the past that we did was wrong. And just without even looking to the science, without even looking to research, we just started trying to change everything. And I, I say everything, and I keep going back to that math formulas thing because I've heard so many people say that lately, never teach a math formula. And I think it's just, it's a symptom of a bigger problem because I know personally, I could never have learned any math if that's how I was taught. Yeah. And I, I hate the idea that we have a system that, that certain kids can't learn in. And I think that balance 30 is also an example of that, that mm-hmm. there are going to be kids who just fall through the cracks in that system if we don't have early reading intervention that's focused around foundational skills mm-hmm. because- some kids need that foundational knowledge and that explicit instruction to succeed. And I think it's important for equity and for society to have a system that has that already built in. Absolutely. And the other question I'd love to ask you, Nate, is um, at the beginning of this conversation, we, we sort of talked about balanced literacy and sort of going into the science, what is the definition or an explanation for science of reading? Yeah, well, it's funny. I think there's there's debate over what is the science of reading. And I, I think there's a shocking amount of debate. And it's funny because we have this science reading movement and yeah. I'm really grateful to the science reading. I'm gonna give a shout out to Donna because I said this before. Prior to this year, I've been writing this blog um, and researching about this for four years and uh, I just felt like this this lone person shouting in the darkness to the moon. I had like 500 readers a month, mm-hmm. whoever they are. I don't know who they were, but um, and uh, read my blog. And then I, I found out about these social media groups in, in like uh, December 30th or something. Mm-hmm. And I joined them and uh, my like my blog exploded. And I, I've had uh, it's just in a massive um, inflow of like people read the blog and sending me questions and emails about it, too. Um, which is really cool to feel like I had this connection with all these people and finding like-minded people. Mm. But at the same time, I see so many camps within the science reading. And I think to the outside, like balanced literacy people, I always see them on Twitter, like complaining about science reading people. Mm. And uh, I don't think there is one science reading person. I don't think like there is one defined science reading. Um, and, and like, even within the groups, I see like, you know, there's a big push for some for Orton Gillingham phonics. Yeah, there's yeah. some who would say, who I, I like they think SWI like structured word inquiry like by Pete Bowers they see that as the science there's people who see like the Louisa Moat speech to print model of linguistic phonics as the answer 
And there's other people who see like that classical synthetic phonics that the NRP demonstrated efficacy for as being the answer. And um, I, I don't know. I, I actually think it's, it's wrong to label the science of reading as one thing too, yeah. because we don't actually have enough research um, on the science of reading to define it to a limited thing. Um, I think the science of reading is whatever we have science and evidence for. And like, there's a series of practices that mm -hmm. I would say. And I think a lot of people see, like, I think there's a lot of people who would say science reading is phonics and phonemic awareness or phonics and decodables or phonics and um, uh, uh, multi-sensory instruction. And there's so many practices that I think are evidence-based. And I really think it depends on the grade. Um, like what is science of reading for grade one is very different than the science of reading for grade eight. And, uh, I, I do sometimes see people advocating for a model of reading instruction, especially in the balanced literacy crowd. I think they want to advocate for a model that I think is totally appropriate for older students mm -hmm. at too young of a grade. And, and sometimes I see people with inciting for reading, movement, not calling any individuals out or any like thought leaders or scholars, but I'll see teachers will mm -hmm. say things like, oh, I'm teaching Haggerty in my grade eight class this year because I'm science of reading. And I'll be like, I don't think that's the science of reading, yeah. you know? Uh, so actually I, I wrote a book about it. Mm. I have it in front of me, if that's okay to, yes. to show. Please. Yes. Yeah. And uh, um, it, it just, uh, it unpacks the, uh, um, the research on it. And I, I specifically, I tried to take a neutral perspective and tried to take an objective perspective. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that I didn't say, make definitive claims like, hey, the science really strongly shows this. And I did. I like I, I said, science really clearly shows that a phonics approach is best in the early grades. Um, but the science reading includes so much more than phonics, it includes vocabulary, includes morphology, includes fluency, it includes comprehension, phonemic awareness, um, writing, spelling. And I tried to look at unpack all of those issues. And what does the research show? What is our best evidence right now? And how does that change over different grades? And, you know, one thing that I find for me, it's important is I always try to make a lot of caveats because when I think of my favorite researchers, they don't really speak in a lot of absolutes. They won't, they won't tell you like, oh, this is the truth. That's the end of the story. They'll say, well, according to the research we have right now, yeah. uh, according to my best understanding of the literature or as best as I know, this is what the research seems to show. Mm -hmm. And that's how I try to frame everything because honestly, I'm planning to do an update on this book at least every two years. I'll probably get, I, I I'm, I like to write, so I could end up doing it one an update every year, and that's because the research is fluid; it's not static. Yeah. We don't know the answer to every question right now. So when I say the science of reading, I'm talking about like, you know, fifty things. I'm not talking about like three things or four things or one thing. It's such a huge topic. Yes. I don't see it as a methodology so much as I see it as like an approach of how we look at at reading. You know. That's right looking to evidence to say what is best practice rather than saying this is what my professor in university 20 years ago taught me to do yeah and you know if we're now thinking about um cognitive psychology education psychology linguistics neuroscience all of these sort of principles are playing a role in science of reading but i'll go a little bit broader and um within australia we're talking about the science of learning and it's mm -hmm. not only the science of reading, but how does that impact? Look, reading is one component of it. And you've said this 
writing is the other component of it, but that then goes beyond subjects. It's not just literacy. You're reading and writing for math. You're reading and writing for religious education, for everything, right? So yeah, yeah, and that is your yeah. overall whole learning. Yeah, and I, I will say, actually, I think that's an area that sometimes gets left out of the conversation of the science of reading and that some of the research that we have the strongest evidence for in terms of teaching practices is more generalized things, not not reading specific. Mm. Um, and like, I, there's so much focus on phonics in the science of reading. And I, I, I've spent a lot of time talking about phonics, but, um, and I'm very pro phonics, but at the same time, I think our best evidence for phonics is actually not the research on phonics itself. It's yeah. the research on the alternatives, like the research on the alternatives to phonics at those ages show really low results. Yeah. So to me, it says, okay, well, we have to include phonics, yeah. but um, like the research on phonics itself doesn't actually show on average, like outstanding um, um, outcomes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's what, what the alternatives don't seem to work. So I think you have to include phonics in those grades. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, Nate, with your book, is anybody just able to pick it up, read it, understand it? Um, uh, you know, do you, yeah, tell us a little bit about what sort of material or what the content of your book. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I wrote the book. All Most of the chapters are actually on my website. And that's just because I'm not a person who's out here trying to make money. Um, I've always just been about trying to help teachers and, uh, putting the, the, putting the book together, the, the goal of the book itself was to take, um, a more systematic approach, because if you go to my website, yes. there's like 150 articles, maybe more, I haven't counted in a long time. Yes. And, uh, you know, they've been written over like four different years and, um, it's, you, you, it's hard to know where to start. So I put everything in a specific order that tries to scaffold the reader um, in a systematic way, I hired an editor to go through because truthfully, I'm not the best at spelling and grammar. And um, um, I, when I wrote it, and when I write all my content, I usually try to write it in my head so that um, the average teacher could read it. And I really, I've always wanted to write for pre-service teachers. Teachers are in school. Yeah. And I just do that because I think they're probably the people who haven't formed that many opinions yet, or at least hopefully not. So I feel like um they can now i have tried to write in such a way that anyone can understand it but i will be honest my previous book the, the of the critics i criticism one of the criticisms i got was that it was very dense and people found it hard to read and i will admit this book is more dense than my last so i i think you got to be willing to like pull up your bootstraps and do your homework if you want to read this book it's not something like that i meant to be as like an easy breezy read while you sit on your dock and uh sip your mimosa over the summer <laughs> And not to say that you couldn't do that, but it, it's probably not like um, a book you read in a night. Um, and uh, in as part of the book, the first three chapters um, are actually just on explaining how to read research yeah. because I wanted the teacher to be able to understand what I was talking about rather than um, just jumping straight in and assuming they know how, how to interpret it. So uh, this is a terrible pitch if I, uh, I was trying to make money. Um, but, uh, um, I think in general, it's really important to me too, though, that teachers learn how to read research because everything I, I see that my blog is about is democratizing scientific research for mm -hmm. teachers, bringing them high quality research and making it easy and accessible for them. 
Um, but there's a, there's always this, um, there's this struggle and balance I have to play as being some, I'm in this weird sort of unique role, I think, in that I'm sort of like an academic blogger. Mm-hmm. And then I write in a space that usually people who are much more qualified than me write, people with PhDs. And um, if I write too, too little detail and include too little scientific variables, mm-hmm. I run the risk of being scientifically invalid and inaccurate. And when I was, I, my ability to research has really grown over time. So I've really improved a lot, even as, especially I'd say in the last year, I've really improved. Yeah. Um, and with some of my earlier stuff, uh, I would get like professors reach out to me be like, Hey, I think you need more detail on this, or you need to include this, or why didn't you include this in your, your analysis? And I was like, Oh, I thought that was self-explanatory and that people would get it. And that this is really more for teachers, but a lot of academics were starting to read my stuff, which is weird too. And, uh, so I started to include a lot more detail. And then I started to get teachers messaging me and being like, oh, this is really dense. I'm having a hard time understanding it. Um, so I'm always trying to like play with that typewriter because I, the, the less detail you include that's scientifically important, um, the less valid your work is. And the more detail you include, the harder it is for people who don't have that scientific training to understand. So mm-hmm. I'm, trying to, I'm trying real hard to, to bridge that gap and keep it as scientifically valid as possible while yeah. also still keeping it accessible to the average teacher. Yeah, we may need to do like a book study or something. I'm just I'm thinking about it in terms of like a speech and language pathologist going, all right, there are lots of important factors we need to um, get across. And how do we do it? And particularly like reading research or knowing how to read research and how to sort of um, access that information is fantastic globally. I'm thinking about Kenya, I'm thinking about Australia, you know, name it, there are teachers everywhere and it would be wonderful to know, yep, here's your science, here's your research, this is what you're looking for or not looking for. Um, That would be fantastic. I would be super excited to do something like that. Okay, maybe. Just one more project for us, Nate. Okay, (laughs) love it. Um, So before we wrap up, has there been something you've been thinking of or something I haven't thought about asking? I don't know. Anything you else you've been wanting to say? Oh. Uh, you know what? No. Um, and I think there are issues where it's funny. I think if you're a balanced literacy person, you'll read certain chapters of this book and you'll be really angry at me. And if you're a science reading person, you might read a chapter and be like, he did not strongly enough agree with me on this chapter. And it's just because I'm I'm trying to present what, what is available. And I think something that people often forget is that when I present this stuff, it's not, often it's not really my opinion. It's just my interpretation of the research. And that's different. I can, I can say like, hey, I think this is great. And the research can go against me. And I can be like, oh, guess I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, so for example, I love peer tutoring. I really use a ton of peer tutoring in my class. Uh, I have been for years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the research of peer tutoring shows it works really well in the later, or when you have mixed match age of groups, like have your grade eights, do the reading buys with the grade twos, fantastic results. Try and do it in your class with your, you know, with the same one class, terrible results in the research. I found I've had a really great results. And I feel like it's how I set that up and the execution of it. And the, the research is missing something, but I can't prove that. So there's no chapter in my book being like why everybody should do peer tutoring in their class. Um, and, and similarly, there's things where 
uh, I didn't think the research would support my opinion. Um, uh, or sorry, well, how do I phrase this? There was things where I felt like um, I didn't agree with what the research was showing. Like I was like, oh, that idea is crazy. And then all the studies show it works amazing. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess there's something there. And repeated reading is a great example of that. It's funny. I, I haven't done a ton of repeated readings in my years because I always thought it sounds so boring. Like just read the same text over and over again. Like that sounds terrible. Why would kids want to do that? Um, but like, if you look at the research, like really consistently shows really high outcomes. In fact, the, the research on repeated reading is far more impressive than the research on phonics. And uh, so like, I had to admit like, oh, I guess I'm wrong. Like repeated reading is probably something teachers should do, you know? Um, so it's really not a book where I'm trying to say like, this is best practice according to my feelings. This yeah. is a book where I'm trying to say, this is what the research shows. And sometimes my feelings don't even match the research, um, but say la vie. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Nate. Um, any key takeaways you would like for anyone listening to this conversation? You know what? I I would love that if teachers took away that there's value in being able to read the research for themselves and to, to go through it for themselves and to just not accept something when it's told to you, whether it's your your professor or your, yeah. your coach that's coming from your school district to talk to you uh, or something you read on the internet. Um, no matter how strong their reputation is, um, everybody gets stuff wrong. Me too. Um, I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And it's really important to have the ability to, to critically reflect for yourself and to read the research for yourself if you want to be um, self-reliant. I think there's, tr there's true value in that. So that's, that's what I'll give my final thoughts. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Nate. And um, I'd like to thank everyone in advance that will be listening to this conversation. Feel free to share it with anyone that may connect. It will be available on YouTube, on the Facebook page, Human Chapters, and on Human Chapters podcast, um, which is on six different platforms. So thank you all. And thank you very much, Nate. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's an honor.